House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Back into the House of Mystery, all the way from Australia, we have author Garrick Jones. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Pleased to be with you. Let's let's talk about your writing and and how you got started. Well, how I got started was that um, I had a 30-year career as a professional opera singer, and uh, because of a serious car accident, that got terminated rather abruptly. So I'd I'd always been interested in research, and I'd done uh, three degrees um, by distance, I suppose you call it, you know, three universities doing university degrees. By at a distance, not actually attending the university. So I was headhunted for a um, teaching position at the university here in the town that I'm in in Australia, and I, that's when I came back home after all those years in Europe. Um, and then I retired seven years ago. And when I retired, I thought, I'm going to start reading novels because I'd never had time in my performing career or um, during academic career really sit down and get stuck in it and I started to realise there was no, even in the gay literature there's nothing really that I identified with as being part of my homeland that had to do with my history that wasn't all about the AIDS crisis Mm. and um, I thought I read a book and I thought I can probably do better than this so I wrote this story um, and I had no idea and I thought you know, this is just crap, and I sat on... I wrote um, nine books over the periods of six years. First, no, five years. Um, and I thought they were all terrible. And then somebody said, let me, shoot, let me have a look at what you've written. And I sent um, my book, The 7th of December, uh, which is set in the World War Two, to this guy. He said, this is just amazing. You must do something about it. So I submitted it to a publisher in the UK, Manifold Press, and like the contract was in the mail within milliseconds. And all of a sudden I started to realise that perhaps that I did have a voice. And that's how it started. Wow. Natural talent. Oh, I don't know about that. Look, I grew up in the years, in the age, when you get to a certain age before computer com- uh, communication where you actually had to write letters. And certainly being brought up in the 50s and 60s, you were judged as a human being, sadly enough, on your ability to write well, um, how you interviewed, how well you dressed and how you spoke. That was the way people were judged, not necessarily on how good they were at what they did. Yeah, things have changed a lot. Um... I just, I just wonder. So now you, what gave you the confidence, Bud? Um, so, you know what I well, mean to actually send it away like that. Um, it was this friend, basically. His name is Alexander Voinov. I don't know if you know him. He's a, a UK writer of um, gay fiction. Um, he, he was the one who said, "You must do this. You must get it um, professionally edited and send it to a publisher." And he said, "Go to these people. They don't rip." Um, writers off and I'm sure they'll like your stuff and it just sort of went from snowball from there and I'm just about to publish my sixth book next week in two years Wow I know, so, Yeah, so you, and so you call yourself you, you say um, historical gay fiction so maybe describe what that is for you Well I, I write about mainly about men from my own country um, and I write about uh, the past the things that happened in the past. I've written one contemporary novel, but I'm, I'm an old bloke and I don't know many, I don't relate necessarily to the contemporary culture, so I find it very difficult to write about, write about it naturally. Um, so it's easier for me to write about things in the past, especially since I'm a post-war baby and I, I grew up with guys who just returned from the Second World War, my you know, my father, my uncle, my cousins, everybody. Who, so I grew up in this atmosphere of this major, major event. And, of course, it was in the days before um, publicly being gay was accepted, but I was pretty well aware of it by the time I was about 10 or 11. Uh, friends of the family who were gay. Right. I also had a gay, yeah, I had a gay stepfather who had a circle of friends. I've actually written a blog post about it, um, sort of saying it wasn't all doom and gloom and McCarthyism wasn't rife all over the world. It was an American phenomenon. And in other cultures, English-speaking cultures, the persecution of gay men wasn't quite as bad as the U.S. 
So I wrote this blog post about what it was like growing up in a community of gay men as a young bloke in the 1950s and 60s. It, it, was, it wasn't as bad as it was in the U.S. Um, it, it, I, guess, I guess it was still something you didn't, you didn't put out there. Well, people just didn't talk about their personal lives full stop. You know, that was, it was considered bad manners, you know, not to talk about personal things. And you didn't say, oh, Fred and Mary are having a terrible time in their marriage while they're having drinks at a you know, cocktail party. It was considered really, as I said, bad manners. People kept their noses out of other people's business. Hmm. How do you choose your subject then when you're, when you're talking about a historical fiction? So you're centering it on a story or, you're, or an event or something or a time, I guess. And you choose characters within that. So how do you choose your event? Um, that usually, the event usually comes to me before the historical period. Um, I always wanted to write about the 1950s, and I always wanted to write a detective novel, a pulp-style detective novel set in the area I grew up and with the times that I knew. Um, and that's how I started to write the Clyde Smith uh, mysteries. The first book of that's already come out, that Cricketer's Arms. Um, and then um, how do I choose subjects? I, but my latest book, Wheelchair, which is the contemporary book I was telling you about, is a, about a man who uh, suffers from PTSD and OCD. Um, and I wanted to describe what it's like for a person who suffers from those, how they go through life, how they see the world, and then compare that with the people around the, him who perceive his world, which isn't necessarily what's going on. So I nestled that also within a crime fiction story, um, uh, a drug ring cartel war that this guy unwittingly gets caught up in. Yeah, so that, I don't know how do people get inspiration. You get an idea for a story and then you decide, well, this would be really nice... Um, if it were set in something. For example, the book that I spoke to you about, Australia's Son, the um, Edwardian theatre crime, theatre mystery, came from a real event. When I was singing in Germany, a friend of mine's dresser was stabbed to death in the dressing room during a performance. And I kept that in the back of my mind. I thought, oh, that was so terrible, that was terrible. And I thought, wow, terrible, but what a great story that would make. <laughs> and that's how, how that, that was born. And it's because it's been my most popular book, I suppose. Yeah. But, but, you know, what, uh, what I mean is, like, when you are writing about the 50s, like you said, you like to write about that time, um, you have to do a lot of research. Uh, well, no, because I grew up in that period. It's, just, it's my life. It's, it's not as if um, I've forgotten everything about that. I mean, of course, I do check on, on particulars, but it's still very fresh. I mean, if you think about your younger days when you were, like, in your tens and then into your teens, do you have to do research about the area you grew up in, what life was like then? Yeah. <laughs> I do. do. Uh, well, do you? Oh, I'll, tell you I'll tell you why, because I think that for me, because um, it was the 60s for me, and for me, uh, I've learned a lot about what went on in the 60s that I was not aware of as a 10-year-old uh, boy. I think uh, as an adult, like, uh, you, you know, when you look at it from a 10-year-old, you see certain things going on and you, you don't understand it the same way as someone that, let's say, is 40. No, yeah, look, I understand. Yes, I understand. I suppose I was glossing over the whole... I do do a lot of research. Most of my writing time is spent on research. I'd say two-thirds of the time that I write every, every day is researching stuff. Um, oh, I, I, just making, <laughs> getting your ducks in a row, making sure you don't. Well, the reason stuck. I was going to, because I was going to ask you if you felt the same thing. Do you, do you every once in a while find out things about the times you were growing up and kind of, wow, I didn't realize that. Oh yeah, plenty of stuff like uh, about that. I mean, I I grew up I'm quite happy to admit it as an abused child, so I spent a lot of um, a lot of time being very quiet and observing things, um, and I didn't know where that anger came from until I started to read about what happened to servicemen during the Second World War, especially Australian servicemen who'd been involved in the Pacific conflict, uh, prisoners of war, guys who'd been tortured by the Japanese. You know, my, my, I suppose my closest older male friend had been a man who'd been in Changi. I don't know if you about that prison camp in Singapore. Um, 
and un- until I discovered what they'd been through, I had no under- understanding where that anger came from. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. so certainly, certainly research has been very... That, that breadcrumb trail, I mean, it's a terrible... You know, that vortex, that black hole of research, you, you start looking at one thing and about 10 hours later you're onto 20 million peripheral things of interest. That, that's yeah. part of what I love about it, to be honest. It's also very really frantic, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you aware of, like, when you're researching or the sort of stories you're telling, having, you know, in some ways, like, filling in, you know, I know it's fiction, but they are sort of filling in gaps, of historical gaps um, uh, you know, for gay yeah. men. Oh, look, I did a lot of interviewing. I do a lot of interviewing. In fact, um, seven years ago, I was lucky enough to still have quite a number of friends of my godfathers who were still alive, who'd been through the war and been through that period. And when I told them I was writing the book, The 7th of December, which is about World War II, they were very, very happy to tell me what it was really like. Um, and this latest book, Wheelchair, I interviewed a whole lot of guys in the gay wrestling, gay boxing, um, humiliation play world who were very happy to tell me the most extraordinary things. I mean, people like to share their stories, especially if they can remain anonymous, let me say. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a story for you. No, uh, I just wonder now, so when you, um, when you write a book, you're centering it on gay characters, but it's not about their relationship necessarily. Well, I think that, that if you're writing about history, we have a different whole, whole sense of, um, of gay community these days than we did, say, in the 60s, early 60s, when you were growing up, pre-Stonewall days, and in the 50s, where there were circles of people who knew each other and I describe it in one book a bit about, like, in the area you grew up, one character says to the other, wasn't there a community of Italians or Greeks or something that didn't, um, they didn't intermingle, they had little separate enclaves? And the guy says, yeah, yeah, of course. He said, well, if you were one of those Italian or Greek guys, wouldn't you want to go and join in with those other people uh, just to be, have some comfort to recharge your batteries about your background? And I think that's probably what it was like for most gay men um, right back. You know, they formed little communities that weren't necessarily secret, but they were not part of the everyday mainstream life. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I remember those days. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, it, it, in a way, it was, it was off the beaten path, and it was always something that was sort of not necessarily secret, but just not in, in everyone's face, as you would say. Well, exactly. You didn't talk about it. I mean... It, it wasn't as if the, um, you were sort of Latino or Japanese or, or coloured that you could tell people from visually what their sexual identities were. Right. You know, so you just went through life being another person. I, I, I never felt like I was hiding anything. I was just me. And there were certain aspects of my life that I didn't talk about. Like I didn't talk about how big my poo was that this morning, <laughs> that morning, you know. Yeah, well, you know. Uh, but I, I, I find it interesting. So when you create your characters, how do you do that? Um, or, I mean, are you well, using other people you know? People? You oh, know? I, I use other people I know. And in fact, um, I have a book out which has been very, very well received in Australia called The House with a Thousand Stairs. And it's actually the story um, about a man who rediscovers his land through connection with the Aboriginal spirituality and their concept of land around him by means of a childhood friend with whom he connects after they've come, both come back from the Second World War. Um, and that's based on a lot of people that I grew up with, a lot of family members, a lot of my own personal history. But I think that any writer you know, writes parts of who they are and then you translate that into other people. Um, I sort of shift myself into other people's eyes. And a lot of that comes from being a performer 30 years on the stage, you know, that your whole life is spent being, you know, discovering who other people are and then becoming that person when you're, you're performing. So when I write, nearly all of my writing is done visually 
about how people move, what motivates them, what makes them stand up for a chair, up from a chair and moving to get a drink. I don't write about that, but that's what I think when I'm writing. What makes these people feel these things? How do they interact with each other? Um, so I suppose my books are more character-based driven than, and story is the overall strength, the arch of the bridge, in fact, on which hangs the, the development of the, the characters, what their feelings are, how they relate to each other, and how that drives the story forward. Awesome. How do you, but how do you um, feel about your characters? I, and I ask that not to be weird, just so that we do a lot of uh, fiction writers, and a lot of people you know, say to me, like, uh, the, their characters are like their children or they're like good friends or something. Like, they always have a, a, a very unique relationship with the people they write. Is it uh, the same? Is it the same? Yes, it is exactly the same. If the, the book Australian Sun that I was telling about is about an opera singer, obviously, in 1902, and because I could write about, you know, basically first-person experience through that, but put it in a historical context with a... Um, theatre murder mystery about it. I, each one of my characters I love, even the bad people, um, so-called the, the antagonists in the story, because I think that everybody is flawed. I, the one thing I really don't like to read are two-dimensional characters where everybody's like other goody-two-shoes or they're all totally evil. I mean, it's, it's, one has to understand the reasons what makes people behave the way they are, what way they do, and what makes them who they are. So I think all of us have flaws, and it's the thing that I like about people the most. It's the thing that's always attracted me um, to other guys has been their vulnerability, their level of vulnerability. Um, even if there's a facade of strength and, or there's a wall up, I, if I can't relate to their vulnerability, I don't connect with them. Wow. So that does must... that answer your question? Well, it, it does, but I, I was just going to say, but when... When you write about um, the vulnerability of other men, do you not also write about your own? Of course I do. I can't tell you this book, Wheelchair, about the guy with OCD and PTSD. It took me two years to write because it was basically a lot of my own childhood experiences. And um, I, I faced a lot of internal demons when I was writing that book. I had to put it away for months before I could go back because the experience about writing that stuff was so cathartic. Um, and what drove this guy to humiliation play to be only able to have emotional connections by being beaten up. Um, it, you know, like, that wasn't my experience, but I related certainly to the feeling of being humiliated and, and abused as a child and then and then looking of love for, for love and comfort to try and make that pain go away. You know, it was a really tough write for me. And I, I knew it would be controversial. It's the only book I've ever had that's had a, a one-star rating. And I'm probably from a straight man who thought it was about, I don't know. <laughs> well, does that, but does that matter to you? Do, no, it doesn't. I don't, write you know. for, I don't write for reviews. I write because it's, it's something within me that needs to get out. I mean, it's, I, I can't tell you the desperation of the books that are burning away going, write me, write me, write me. <laughs> so, so it's more about, it, it, in, in a way, when you're writing, it's more about um, something you have to say. Oh, of course, definitely. What's the point if you're not if you're not going to make people feel? This is I learnt this as a performer. Is you can be the best technician in the whole world if you didn't stand up in front of that audience and make somebody connect with you. What's the point? What What's the point about any artistic endeavour at all? Whether it's writing, painting, sculpting, performing as a musician, if you don't make if you don't move people, if you don't connect with them in a way that it makes them think or feel something, what's the point? Sit on your couch and watch TV and eat popcorn so you'll get <laughs> I, I do that too. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, well, it, it's, it's interesting because I think um, I, I agree, you know, right, and I'm speaking for myself as a writer, but I also think that there is a lot of writing out there that it is sort of about distracting you from your feelings. You know uh, what I mean? Yeah, look, yeah. I, I don't want to be dismissive of anybody, <laughs> but sort of 99-cent novels that people churn out every six weeks without being proofread or edited. I just go, <laughs> well, they look good on them. If they can make a living, I have no complaints about that, but it's not necessarily my life or what I, I want to live. Sure. 
and there's enough people out there who buy it and they enjoy that sort of stuff. That's good too. That's all by me, but I, I don't write like that. I, I had a, um, I suppose it was a compliment stab in the heart when I read somebody posted on Twitter the other day. He said, um, I sort of like the idea of your books, but I don't really like them because I actually have to read them. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it. Well, you know, look, I, I don't know about, no, it's not confusing, you know, you think about it, I don't know when you're, you guys are writing, but do you not agonise about this, the structure of one sentence or the correct choice of a word so that you're really communicating the exact feeling that you're trying to write? Doesn't every, yeah. good, doesn't every writer do that? I mean, obviously they don't, but, you know, they don't. you, 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 you <laughs> I hope don't to do. do. But, yeah. Well, I'm always, yeah, I'm always worried about it. I always think it's never good enough. Oh, no, well, who does? I mean, I think there's something wrong with you if you actually think that you're... Uh, any writer who's not a, um, what's the word, uh, an imposter, doesn't go through imposter sy syndrome, I just don't understand that. So how do you I know... I never felt that as a performer. I never, ever felt that as a performer. I got up and I sang, you know, to thousands and thousands of people all over the world. I ne never felt one moment of self-doubt. I felt plenty of self-criticism, but I didn't feel that I couldn't do it. But with writing, every time I, I write a new chapter, I think, oh, that's just crap. <laughs> yeah, but how do, you, how do you know then? How do you know uh, uh, when you've achieved that? Like, so when you're, when you're writing and you go, oh, look, this is terrible. I can't believe this. I can't believe I wrote that. And you're doing this. When is it that you have enough confidence to go, this is ready to be published? Uh, look, uh, you... If you haven't got a really good editor, who, <laughs> like, give up. You know, if you don't, if you don't use a professional editor, you you best not writing because you need. It's like let me just explain it as a singer. Um, I was really really close friends with a lot of very very famous people. I perform with them. When you when you work twenty. Um, any sort of level of achievement, you need that second pair, pair of ears or second pair of eyes to tell you how it is. I, 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 some of my conversations with my editors are hysterical, like sort of yelling at each other in margin notes. Yeah, yeah, but that's part, you know, in a, in a way, well, there, there's got to be a point where, you know, you're writing a, a story, you're writing about characters, you're writing about, you're presenting something, but you're not worried about the grammar or the structure like they are. No, but you, the, a good editor will do a really good developmental edit in which they point out, obviously, the major flaws or where the, where the pace is lacking. And then I think the, the bulk of the work is done in what I call the line edit. Maybe you call that the copy edit? I don't know. There's different right. words for it. Yeah. Where they dissect the, the story sentence by sentence and, and say this doesn't flow on, this dialogue tag doesn't move through. Where's the connection? Why does this person say this? Why do they do that stuff? And that, that's where I think that the bulk of the work happens. And if you don't have an editor that that when you get your manuscript back is more red than black, then there's something wrong. You need to get somebody with a better eye. Yeah. I, I, my maxim is it's the author writes the words, it's the editor who writes the book. Yeah, and, and it's true. I think about that quite often when I put out a book um, about how important the editor uh, has been in, in, the, in putting it out. Oh, precisely. I mean, we, we all, you know, if you have a partner, you love your partner, you might understand their, their misgivings or something like that, but you are somebody who doesn't like from outside your circle what they think, and you get a whole new aspect about this person that you didn't see, but it doesn't make you love them any less. Right. It makes yeah. you understand them a bit more, and I think that's what an editor does to your book. Even if they go, this is, you know, these, I just in the middle of rewriting a book which a publisher wrote to me and said, I hate this book, this is crap. <laughs> <laughs> you really, really like to get stuff back from a publisher like that, don't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so I, I looked at it and I thought, I don't agree with you, but I will have a look at it from the outside and try to understand why this person hated that, this story, um, and not make excuses for it, but try to understand it, so what I can do with that story to make it more accessible to more people. 
Yeah, and it's going to be hard. I, I find it, it it's always hard. It's, the worst part is going through edit. Oh, for sure. For sure, that's the very worst part. Uh, no, I tell you what the worst part about writing is, is the self-promotion afterwards. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah that, that's that's, no, that's, I just don't know how to do it, yeah. Well, you're, you're in a boat with 90 million other people. <laughs> I mean, you know, I often think it's like this huge sea and all you can see is hands with books in the air going, read me, read me, and how do you, how do you get your hands to stick a little bit higher without this incredible hubris? Uh, it's mm. so hard. Yeah. So hard. Yeah. yeah, and I find myself, I turn off. Um, as soon as that, that, it's at that point and the publisher's putting it out, I find myself looking in another direction, which really bothers them. It really pisses them off. Yeah, I look, I, <laughs> I have a thing for, um, you know, when I see blurbs, if there's a, a bare-chested man on the cover, I go, I'm not, this is yeah. not my genre. <laughs> I'm not, I don't care who wrote it. Stephen King wrote it. I won't, Stephen King wrote it. I wouldn't read it. It's just it's not going to be the sort of thing that I like. And, in fact, the whole thing that, about judging a book by its cover is, is really important. I think it's good to have a good cover. But yeah. if your cover is selling your books, then you need to have a good look at your writing because it's, it's the 300 pages between the front and back cover which makes you an author, not the, the pretty pictures on the front which somebody else has done for you. Yeah. Oh, exactly. I think that's, is that is that too tough to say? No. no. In fact, I I say it much harder than that. But uh, yeah, <laughs> true. It's the yeah. substance of it that that's going to carry it over a period of time. It's not it's not the cover and and colors and covers and all that sort of the tastes will change. Um, you know what something might be a great cover now is not necessarily something in ten years. No, I think. The cover should honor the contents of a book, you know, and so it needs to be great to honor a great book, you know. But if there's, if it's just like gloss, you know, then yeah. yeah look, the... may I just point out Penguin Books? Do you remember what that cover is? It's an it's orange, like, orange yeah, cover orange with a, with a penguin white. on the front. Yep, with a penguin on the front, and then the name of the book and the author. Mm-hmm. You know, that's. You know, you know that it's going to be a good book. The cover doesn't really matter. But today, I mean, we're all about, you know, TV ad type advertising. Mm-hmm. I've even found myself doing animated GIF, um, sort of like publicity things with Photoshop because it draws the eye and people want that. And I think this is just, I should be writing. I should be writing, not doing publicity. But then what's the point of writing if nobody reads your stuff? Right. You want people to hear your story, whether they they like your voice or they don't like it. You just want people to hear no, what you have to no, say. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. And I, that's the whole charm of it. I don't. I don't, I want don't you believe to. you. Yeah. No, <laughs> I don't want you to read it. Uh, <laughs> that's a really, really good marketing strategy. You should, next ad, you should go, do not read this book. Yeah. Do not. Um, and you know, it works great. And the more people. Pandora's can, box. Yeah, and the more they say to you, the ruder you can get, and the more they like you. There's a number of people out there like that, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of very, def- really defensive writers out there. Um, well, I mean, it's an easy thing to do because you you said yourself, you know, when you're singing or performing, you you know, you didn't second guess. You you knew what was right and wrong. But when you're writing, you don't necessarily always know. So, so sometimes people can say things that uh, you know it might cut too deep. You know, it might cut in a place yeah. where you're unsure. And so, there, yeah, there's a lot of defensive writers out there. But um, some days I get up, and and it's terrible. You get you, you, everything bad happens in that one day. You'll look at things, and you'll get the, these bad write-ups, or you get these things that happen. And then other days are great. So, yeah, I think that's part of the. It goes with the vulnerability of exposing yourself when you write. Yeah. But you know, when you do anything that's artistic, you're really going. This is this is me. Um, at a remove, you're looking at something that I've created, but it's really part of me. And I think that we're all pretty fragile human beings, despite some bluster. Um, and we, we can't help but fail to be moved either for good or for bad by when people comment on what we do. I have Look, I have this argument all, all the time. <clears throat> I have a close relative who, who um, started um, like a home goods store 
with online ordering. And I got this email out of the blue from her saying, you know, uh, what's wrong with you? You've never bought anything from me. You've never supported me. Blah, 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 blah. And I just wrote back and I said, send me the receipts from the books of mine that you bought and I'll spend that much money with you. <laughs> and I got into a huge depression about that afterwards and I thought, you know, you can't depend on your family and your close friends to be your critics and supporters because that's just like wanking. Do you understand that word? Mm, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. John does it all the time. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. It's emotional wanking and you have to get out there and you have to, you have to test people. I think you have to push... Uh, push boundaries when you write. I think that the stuff that I've had the best feedback on is the stuff where I've really gone out there. There's one story in my collection of the boys of Bullaroo, which is based on a true story about a, a young guy who basically wasn't gay, but he he fell in love with a, another straight guy and they formed a relationship during the war and they both died in a Japanese prisoner camp, war camp and uh, this guy's mother let me read the letters that he'd sent back home and she knew the, 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 about their relationship and I wrote about that and I still can't read that story back without crying and a lot of people have written to me saying the same thing about that whole thing, it moved them to actually moved them to tears. I think if I never wrote another word, another story in my whole life again, that, that was worthwhile that a number of people were moved by that but, particular short story. But something like that, so as time goes by and you write more, um, I find with myself, um, you can let more of yourself into the story. Oh, I think that's true. I think that's, that's the most wise thing I've heard in years, to be quite honest. I, I think that ability to actually, to not... When you're young, you go about life showing people who you want them to think you are. When you get older, you don't give. Oh my! Um, can I say that? You can no, but that's that. all right. They'll they'll bleep it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you don't give a toss to use an Australian expression. You just go. Well, this is who I am. I got here by going through all of this crap in my life that's made me the person I am. If you don't like me, bugger off. I think that's the attitude that happens when you get older, and I, I, I'm starting to discover that with my writing. What you just said you know, really touched me. I've just written it down, actually, um, to keep my reminding myself, is that you need to be open and true to who you are when you're writing. You can't pretend to be somebody else. That's why I've never understood people writing with pseudonyms, how, uh, you know, like you're pretending mm. to be somebody else when you write, you know. Why can't you just be you? It's not important if you're a man or a woman. Yeah. What your yeah. truth is on the page is what should sell your story. And I'm so naive, you know, I'm going through and we're doing interviews with people and what was that, what's that guy's name, Glenn Allwood or something? I didn't even realize that was a fake name and everyone's laughing at me. I, I'm so, I didn't catch it because he's, he's, he, he writes male, male, you know, romance sort of stuff. Yeah, you know? well, let me Allwood. just say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is um, contentious, but look at the Josh Lanyon story where everybody thought that Josh Lanyon was a, a man for years and years and turns out to be a woman. I mean, what was wrong with Josh Lanyon actually being a woman from the very start? I, I don't, maybe as a gay man I have a different mindset, but to me I don't really care what your gender is. It's what you do. It's the most important thing. Yeah. Well, I think when you get to the heart of it is, that's it is. But I think there's a lot of people who live with these constructs, right? They have these ideas of what should be, and so it just sort of, I, I, I guess it, it shatters shatter some of the foundations. Yeah. It makes them feel okay. insecure. Yeah, I can understand that. A marketing aspect to, you know, you know, people expect a certain story written from a particular perspective, you know. But the, yeah, they expect think, that, but it's, you, you've got to be able to back that up with the words on the page. There's no point, you know, writing about something that you don't really, really understand if you can't actually get that right on the page. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, how, how, how do you know that when you are confident enough to let some of your stuff stuff go, as in, like, when you're adding yourself into a story, 
Um, right. You see, for, for me, okay, so when I, um, you know, I, I had a late start. I'm, I'm autistic, and it took me a long time to come out of myself. And so the first books were very meat potatoes. There wasn't a whole lot of me in it, as you might say. And as time goes by, I'm getting more and more confidence enough to let certain things come out. Um, but it still feels really rather... Um, I don't want to say stupid, but it feels rather sensitive to me as I do it. When do you come up with the confidence? Like, when do you know it's right? Well, I don't. I never do. Um, and I suppose that's just a matter of, you know, letting the child go. Uh, I, yeah, I get, when I read back through stuff that I've written that's already been published, I go, oh, gosh, I wish I'd done this thing. <laughs> then, I don't, I, you know, like, yeah. uh, but the, the thing is, it comes to a point where you're never going to let it go. It, it's like trying to make a perfect child and, it, you know, the, who is it? Is it the Quakers who design quilts that have always got a mistake in them? Is it? Yeah. Am I right there? Or yeah. is it some, yeah. yeah. It's that sort of thing. You're going, well, even if there are mistakes, and it comes to a point where it's got a, let go. But when you were talking about um, knowing whether you're right or not, I, this book, The House with a Thousand Stairs, which is about the Indigenous Australian culture, I couldn't write that book in first person. I had to write it. I, normally I write in first person. I had to write it in third person. Then I had to write about the Aboriginal Indigenous culture as seen through the eyes of a white man because I didn't feel I had the ownership of writing into a different colour and a different race. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there where people cross that boundary and it never, I'm never comfortable with it. So when I wrote this story, I actually sent, uh, I managed to track down a gay man from the nation who speaks the language about which I was writing and got him to give me a sensitivity writing, a reading, and to give me comments on it to make sure that I hadn't Europeanized his culture, um, and I suppose that's when his OK came back with a few provisos, I suppose that gave me the confidence to go, OK, I'm pretty well happy about the Australian um, rancher, for to use an American word, sheep farmer, um, <laughs> and his life and the way that he lives his life and his experiences during the war, but I wasn't up until that point quite sure about whether I had got a white man's vision of an indigenous culture, right? Mm. So that's when I was able to let that go. Yeah, it's it's quite the um, when you so when you're writing these uh, stories, is there something, let's say, um, outside of the plot, something that you want people to get out of reading your book? Yeah, there always the is. Uh, the, the, the main thing for me is always the normalcy of our sexuality that most gay men don't necessarily define themselves by the fact that they're attracted to other males. That's just who they are. It's like being left-handed or being clumsy or walking into the fridge in the middle of the night. You know, it's, it's just one of those aspects of human nature and we let the heterosexual world define us. Um, I have a very good friend who says, you know, you obviously heard about the Sydney Mardi Gras, I mean, mm -hmm. but he says for every single guy that's up on a float or marching in that parade, there are 20 guys who go through life as builders, judges, council mm -hmm. workers who don't relate to that culture at all. The only difference oh. is that they might go home at night time to a person of the same sex and say, how, how was your day, and give them a kiss. That's the, and so I try to write about that. I Try to, I don't write about the subculture. I write, try to write, unless it's important to the story, I try to write about guys who are just guys. I don't know. No, I think that's important. I agree with that totally. I think it's, I think it's something that's um, perhaps different in different countries. I think, I think in the U.S. itself, there's still a big fight. I think people still feel the risk. Uh, in Canada or Australia, I think it's more, we're more mixed in with society. Well, I do, yeah, look, I think that there's also, we have this culture in Australia, you might have heard of it, called mateship. Right. It, it defines who we are. It comes out of the Anzac spirit, the, the First World War, that your male companion is your closest friend. 
doesn't matter about your wife or your kids, your buddy is your closest, closest friend. And it's, there's such a fine line between that loving your best friend and feeling, you know, sexual feelings for them. And I think most guys in my country go through that questioning at some stage in their life. Um, it's why guys in prison have sex with each other, why guys in the army when there's just no, there's only other blokes around that they, they start to experiment. It's, it's the reason, you know, we break down barriers. I mean, why should there be such a, a, a big difference between playing with your dick with another guy and when a woman's there? What's, what's the big thing? It's, it's a societal thing. It's not actually a, a thing born of nature. If it wasn't a thing born by nature, we'd have gay people. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Is that too profound for 8 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> no. I, it's, um, God, I, I usually get a much more aggressive than that. But um, you're right. I think that's true. Um, I just... Um, so how do you get on with the other gay, gay writers? Oh, uh, look, I've got... Do uh, you know Brad Sharif? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Brad's a great yeah. pal of mine. You know, we, we bounce off each other all the time. We talk about our ups and downs, our daily life, stuff like that. Um, I have a number of uh, female gay writers who are very, very good friends. I get them very well. I mean, I've, I'm very fortunate to have been my first review um, from a writer, John Inman, was so breathtaking. I still look at it and go, God, this guy isn't talking about my stuff. Um, I, I think that I try, I try to, I, I don't compete. I don't go, my stuff is better than yours. Uh, I don't write differently. We're all in this together. We're all trying to get our voices heard. Well, what's the point of being in competition? When you're, a, when you're a professional performer, you don't compete with the people around you. It's an ensemble thing. It's about us all having a dis different aspect of our own lives. Surely that's right, isn't it? Unless you're a diva. Well, I... <laughs> Yeah, and we know how well divas manage to get on through life. Yeah, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It always becomes rough. Yeah, there's one one at the moment on their way out we could mention. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> oh, well, it's, it's it's interesting. What do you, what's your influences? Uh, my influences have to be my fascination with reading history. Um, and to realize that people have always felt the same, they always go through the same traumas, um, they've always had the same problems with their relationships, we just dress differently and perhaps we behave differently, but the, my influences have all been come through from that nothing's really different, it's just different shades of the same stuff. And so I do a lot, a lot of research. My coffee table is piled full, full of books about different periods in history, and I suppose the lesson is um, how nothing's new, really, ever, right. except technology. What would you say for advice for a person that um, hasn't published anything that, that is writing? Oh, just keep going. Keep writing. It doesn't matter what you write. Just write every day. Make sure that you write every day. If you don't write every day, don't blame yourself. Give yourself the luxury of having a day where you're feeling depressed or you think it's terrible or life gets away with you, but try and write every day. I mean, it's, honestly, it's, it becomes easier to write the more that you write um, because you somehow through the process of going through editing and everything like that, you start to understand how sentences should form and then you start to examine how one action can lead on to another and that helps drive your narrative. I'm a bit of a pantser. I know the beginning and I know the end, and I know a couple of important points, crossroads on the way through the story. But some of the best things I think I've ever written are things that have come to me because I've just gone, oh, fuck this, let's kill somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and from that point develops a whole new layer, a whole new dimension of the story that you didn't have in your mind. And I, I, that's why I like pantsing so much. <laughs> do, do you like to kill people you know? Um, I do it reluctantly. I like to make them flawed. I like to know that every single person I write about, even the first person people I when I write in first person, that there is a struggle that goes on because that's all of us, isn't it? 
Hmm. Now, um, website. You have a website. I do have a website, www.garrickjones.com.au. It has uh, all of my books on the um, front page, a bit about me. There's um, links to Amazon sites. There's a number of blogs. I, I write a blog about every three months, and that's usually a couple of thousand word blog, blog about aspects of writing fiction. Um, my latest one was about the problems I had when writing this story about the man with OCD and PTSD and about how not everybody has an easy road in life and how people learn to cope with their, the cards that they're dealt. Um, and then I have other blogs about what it was like to grow up in the 1950s. I have blogs about uh, interviews with men who formed relationships. My godfather met his boyfriend in Rainbow Corner in 1942 in London and they were together for 65 years. And it was because the night that they went there to dance, the MPs, the American MPs, cleared all the women out of, the, uh, out of this dance hall, which was for American servicemen and allied servicemen, because there were a couple of women uh, had come in being prostitutes and pickpocketing. And so they had the system where you could get a, an armband that you danced the female part, um, one dance, and then you swapped the armband out and you became the male part. And that's how they met. And 65 years later, they were still together. Wow. That's a great story. Now, it was quite wonderful, and I still have his wartime diaries, which is what I used to base my 7th of December series on, um, about his experiences during the war. I wonder, like, so when these, um, when these years come across, like when there's the wildfires and when there's, you know, um, COVID and all this stuff going on, Donald Trump, um, <laughs> how do you, how do you, but does that kind of stress get into your writing as well? No, interestingly enough, the I wrote a, I mean, it sounds like a terrible corset ripper. I wrote the culmination of a relationship which actually happened during a bushfire <laughs> before this big bushfire that, that burnt half of Australia to the ground last year, the beginning of this year. Mm. Um, no, I don't try to use contemporary themes. I'm, I, I'm sort of shaking my head at the number of books that are coming out about love affairs that are caused, you know, pandemic and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, but I just wonder because when I, um, like I was just talking because I'm in the, in the midst of writing all these um, books right now and I'm doing some commercial stuff about interviews and, um, you know, so I'm at home writing 12 hours a day and then I ran out. 12 oh, hours? Oh, oh my God. Crazy take my right hat now. off to you. Oh, it's crazy. I've got, <laughs> I've got a big project. Crazy. But I, so I, yeah, so I run out to Costco yesterday for a break and, um, of course there's a man in the, in the lineup stopping the lineup because he's refusing to wear a mask. Oh, and, you know, and you just kind of go, oh. but, but that, that, that experience in itself, causes me to be a little frustrated and I roll my eyes and stuff. So when you come back and you start writing, I mean, my mood is no longer the same as it was. Yeah, look, I, I, you know, I'm I, I, I write, do you write mood-based? Do you have one of those days where you might have slept really badly, you had a dream you can't remember, and it affects your waking yeah. hours after yeah, that? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I, I go, well, today I can't write this this morning. I'll go and do something productive, you know. Yeah, but I'm learning that. Maybe I'm yeah, do something else. That. Watch yes. Colby Keller for half an hour. Right, and that's just sort of, I, that's just come across my mind. The Did last... that go right over your head? No. <laughs> 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 uh, but it is LA won't know. Uh, but <laughs> but I um, it just sort of hit me to do that the last couple of months. It just sort of, that's actually why I ran went to Costco was to break up my bad mood. But it didn't help. It made it worse. <laughs> <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's always a, a, a guy thing that we can do to break moods, but you know. Yeah. Well, there is, but you know. Yeah. Um, look, I I think that sometimes you, n you need to push through the pain on every every self, and I think you need to go. I need to write with, and just, and then the next day you look at it, and you go, "This isn't nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be." 
you know, sometimes that are, sometimes when you're writing in a really bad mood, you can let stuff out that you didn't know was there. Yeah. Not all, not always, but sometimes I've found that to my advantage when I've written something and I've gone back and I get up in the morning and go, I need to look at all this pile of steaming. Oh my. Yesterday. And then all of a sudden you realize that there's, you know, like a bit of gold in that pile of poo. Yeah. And, yeah. And, it, and it, you can actually use that, that thing that you wrote unconsciously can help drive the book or the story or another plot. Yeah. Yeah. It surprises me what it does usually for me. But yeah. Yeah, and then other times you think you've written, you know, another War and Peace, and you sit down no. and you go, "Who wrote this?" Uh, yeah, but I've never had that confidence. Too good, of, too good of a mood, you got to beware. Yeah, I've never <laughs> had that kind of a confidence. I'll tell you, but uh, you know, and actually, you know, I will say, you know, um, uh, John Copenhaver here, he's written a book, and I listened to his book there. Pretty amazing stuff. You, you, oh. you know, I, I will say that I was really, I was surprised. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that's wow! A, that's a compliment. I guess. No, yeah. no, it really um, was. It was. I thought it was pretty amazing. I, I don't know about you guys, but um, do you get people in your life that didn't know you were writers? I don't know when you came to writing, when you started, and they write to you. and They go, "Oh, wow! You can actually write stuff." Yeah. <laughs> I think I had a lot of people in my life who thought I was just lying about writing because it's taking so long to write this thing. And they're like, oh, he's just telling us that's what he's doing. But is he really writing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I felt like I was coming out of it. I was like, no, I really was writing something. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fact is that you actually do it. It's sort of, who was it? Um, somebody made, was Judge Bernard Shaw, made some sort of terrible remark about women at the beginning of the 19th century. It's just that, not that they can do it, but it's just amazing that they can. You know, it's terribly dismissive comments about your writing. Oh, you actually know what you're writing about. You know, like for fuck's sake. You know, like, I, I get a, I, com I had a really, really lovely review um, from an American reader, and he wrote, um, "This guy has done a lot of research about his country." And I thought, "Well, no, I live here." <laughs> How did you know, you know so much? I, yeah, I, I don't come from Mars. I don't come from from New York, which is the second closest place in the whole world to Mars that I know. Um, I do come from my country and I do write about, and I don't write specifically about Australia as being some weird place. I write about where I live. If you wrote a book about Vancouver or wherever you live or Seattle or whatever, you'd write about the place you live in. It would be nothing remarkable. you just write about your everyday life. You don't inf uh, inject local flavour in it to make it interesting. You just write, write it the way it is. And it ends up being interesting because... Other people don't know about it. Well, you've got the accent of someone from Alabama. Me, yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, yeah. I'm actually five foot three and I'm a woman. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, there we go. Um, on that note, we will call it quits. Uh, thank this you very much. Yeah, oh, it's been a great thanks. interview. I've had a great deal of fun. Thank you, guys. And let's, let's do it again sometime. I've had a, a blast. Absolutely. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.